0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.
1: Good morning, Mill Creek family. My name is Dennis. I am one of the interns here. Read with me in Genesis chapter 14, 17 through 24. It is on page 7 in your chairback Bibles. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a 10th of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Father God, I thank you just for the privilege to be able to gather in your presence and to hear from your word. Pray that you would speak through Jeremy and give us a new understanding of your presence this morning. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dennis,
0: music team. Thanks to all of you being here. Appreciate you being part of this sweet experiment. Hoping everyone feels honored and part of the Mill Creek community. Well, if you didn't know, the last few days of watching football are upon us. Now, I've become convinced after watching the end of last week's game that God himself wants the Chiefs to win the Super Bowl, so I think you're all in good shape if you're cheering for them. But it will only be a few weeks when football will finish. They'll have a celebration, and we'll get to see if you're watching it on screens that there's confetti floating and an mvp and championship trophies and and then the end of the season for some that will be a great relief i hate football it's over for others of us we will start the countdown to training camp next year and begin reading all the buzz we can and while different people have different reasons for enjoying football One of the things I personally have found so fascinating about the game and enjoyable are the celebrations. Now, of course, the end of game celebration is fine and dandy, but what I really enjoy is during the game when all of a sudden the momentum switches, a touchdown is caught, an interception is had, the whole game turns on a dime, which, boy, was there a lot of that happening in last week's game. (laughs) And then to see how the players respond with such celebration. But I've noticed there's, there's actually two kinds of celebrations. Maybe you've noticed this as well. On the one hand, there's a group celebration where everybody's jumping up, everybody's high-fiving. they even do that sort of jump thing. And instead of high-fiving when I was a kid, they, they high-five their bodies. And I, I still can't quite figure out how to do that. I hurt myself when I tried at one time. But the, the key to this type of celebration is it's a group. My favorite is when they've lined up in the end zone, like bowling pins and somebody bowls a ball and they all fall over. Whatever it is, that's the type of celebration that's a group. The other one I've noticed is the me-centered celebration where all of a sudden a person undoubtedly has a good play, but they might beat their chest or point to the name on their jersey. Have you seen that one? Or uh, arms in the sky with their... Fingers wagging like, yes, give me your praise. Brand one, brand new one to me was uh, the you so small taunt. I-, I didn't know this just a couple weeks ago, but it's, it's when a player has a good play and then he puts his hand like this, goes like this, and, and, and what he's saying is, you just so small. You're like a baby compared to how good I am. The you so small taunt. And then in those celebrations it's much more about the glory of the individual not the glory of the team and i suppose sometimes those things can intermix but i've noticed in football celebrations in the middle of the game you get one or two different responses to a great play now last i checked i didn't i haven't heard of any of you scoring a Touchdown on national TV, and I haven't seen any of you doing a group celebration or a me-centered celebration, but if it's true that our hearts are idol factories, and if it's true that we are glory thieves at times, then it follows that even if we never play a game on TV and feel a temptation to celebrate ourselves, some of us would come face-to-face with a question of, who gets the credit when a big play happens in our lives? For us, in our day-to-day goings-on, comings and goings, who gets the credit when something really positive happens? If the momentum shifts in your life, if there's a goal that you've been going after, and all of a sudden you're seeing some success, where does the credit go? Should Christians have me-centered celebrations? Is there anything wrong for even a few moments for someone to notice that we made a good play on a particular day? For Of course, it is fine for Christians to celebrate, but how much credit should Christians take when they're celebrating something in their lives. This morning in our text, our author, Moses, is going to communicate one primary point. Here it is. God's people give God the credit. It's Moses' big idea in these verses. I'm convinced. God's people, they give God the credit The credit, and I want to show you this sermon in a sentence from our text, and then I want to apply it to our lives, and so those will be the two big ideas of the sermon today. Big idea number one, who really defeated King Cheddar and his war machine? And then big idea number two, what impact should that really have on us today? If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Genesis 14 Verses 17 to 24, I want to walk us through this text so that you know I didn't just show up and decide to write a sermon about some in-game celebrations about football, but instead, really, Moses' heart in this section is about who gets the credit. Big idea number one, who really defeated King Cheddar and his war machine? Now, as we jump into this text we got to keep in mind the context of Genesis 14. If you have your scripture open, you can scan up just a few verses, and you might remember last week when Pastor Craig did a phenomenal job helping us understand the first half of Genesis 14, that there were all of these kings. In fact, uh, there was going to be a battle royale of kings, Uh, five kings versus four kings. It's like a of the early world war, in fact, this is the first time in Genesis we've heard about war. And it was King Cheddar and his three allied kings, they were the group of four, who are going after these rebellious kingdoms and on their way, traveling to the battleground, we read that they just defeat all of these nations and kingdoms just as they're traveling. And so they've defeated six different nations and kingdoms when they arrive at the Battle Royale, and then naturally, they defeat the five kings, and they sweep up all of these people and possessions in their net, and King Cheddar and his war machine return north. That's where they hailed from. And in that destruction, they took Abram's nephew Lot, all those people, and Abram caught wind of King Cheddar's war machine taking Lot And he decided he would chase him down. So Abram, 318 trained men, which sounds like a significant special forces, but it's nothing compared to King Cheddar and his war machine. Abram goes after him, and in the ultimate underdog match, I mean, if there's ever been somebody who is an underdog in this war uh, game, it would have been Abram and his 318 guys. But at night, they wait. And they attack, and they defeat King Cheddar's war machine. And it's phenomenal, and it's worthy of celebration. And so, as he has now defeated King Cheddar, we pick up in our text, as Abram is returning home victorious. Now, at this point in our text, they've likely been traveling for several days, and they still have several days before they're going to get back home. And as they're traveling south, I'm imagining that there's a celebratory mood. Folks are tired. I'm guessing there's women and kids and animals, and yet they're victorious. And they come to a place called the Valley of Kings, which is right outside of Jerusalem. King David and King Solomon's time, all the Israelites would have known where the Valley of Kings And when he gets into this valley, Abram and all of his 318 men and some allies and then all the plunder and people and possessions, they see two kings, two kings waiting for them. That's where we pick up in the text 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine he was priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek blessed Abram. Now, first thing we notice is we've got two kings mentioned here, and one king we met previously. In chapter 14, verse 2, we met the king of Sodom. His name is Bera, B-E-R-A, and now we meet King Melchizedek. And this King Melchizedek, he's who's new to us, and notice he's the king of Salem. Many think that was the origin city of Jerusalem. Before it was named Jerusalem, it was Salem, like Babel was the precursor to Babylon. And Melchizedek from Salem, but also he is a priest king. That's what's so odd here. He's a priest king, and not just a priest king of some random god, he is priest king of God Most High. Now, You're just jumping back into us in Genesis. You may forget since we took a break and preached through the book of Romans that in the book of Genesis, there's all of this lineage that is really important to the author. And we follow how Adam's line gets divided into the seed of the serpent or the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the promise. And we track it all the way to Noah. And then we track it all the way to Abram's dad. And and lineage is so important, but out of the blue... Here we find Abram interacting with the king who has no lineage, he's just worshiping God Most High. So we're thinking, who is this guy? How did he come to know the one true God when King Melchizedek brings out bread and wine? Which is, by the way, not a communion service like some of us in the New Testament (laughs) uh, or in the 2000s might read back into it, but is a author's way of saying King Melchizedek provides a full meal. See, in our culture, we like to celebrate festive occasions with a meal, and they did too. If we went to a wedding, there might be a meal, and in the middle of a meal, we might have a celebration toast, a way to honor there in the middle of the meal, which is what we find happening in the text. It's an equivalent of a toast. And in Look then what King Melchizedek says, having provided the celebration meal following Abram's victory over King Cheddar. Look what he says. And Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, if you just counted the number of the times the word blessed is used there, kids, you could do that real quick in the text. You'd see blessed happens three times, which is a should ring a bell for us about another text in Genesis where blessing is repeated. If you're thinking about God's crucial promise in Genesis 12 where God says, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing, you'd be right that our author wants us to connect these two ideas And what he's doing is showing us that in some ways, God's promise in Genesis 12 is being fulfilled here by King Melchizedek, who says, yes, yes, God's blessing is happening to you, Abram. Blessed be Abram by God most high. And as King Melchizedek blesses God, he uses this word possessor. You might see it there at the end near the end of 19. Mine has a footnote. It also says creator. Uh, But the idea is that Melchizedek is saying, uh, possessor and creator, yes, but even more broadly, God is the source of life and buoyancy and joy in the days of trial. He's not just an origin, as Watke's commentary says, Explains this word possessor is a metonymy, which is a literal word that means a literature word that means it's an umbrella term of capturing all that God is. But the point is this as King Melchizedek is giving a mid meal toast and saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, he is describing for everyone within earshot who God really is. And he finishes in verse 20 Blessed to be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Here then, in this victory feast, what I want you to notice is Abram is not raising his hands and taking the glory, he, Abram's not pointing to his name on his jersey. And, and King Melchizedek. King Melchizedek isn't wagging his finger or giving the you-so-small taunt. Instead, both men are rightly recognizing and worshiping God Most High. They're declaring God deserves the credit. Now, my guess is, When Abram made his way into the valley, he didn't know what to expect from King Melchizedek. And yet, here he is on this side, celebrating with a feast, toasting the Lord, and then look at the end of verse 20. And Abram gave King Melchizedek a tenth of everything. What Abram's doing is affirming what King Melchizedek has Declared, and notice there's this giving and taking, mutual blessing. Abram has showed up in the valley and he's been welcomed to a feast, and Abram took it. And King Melchizedek gives a toast, and they both agree God gets the credit. And then Abram offers King Melchizedek a tenth of everything, and Melchizedek takes it. It shows us a mutual blessing, a mutual affirming. It's a group celebration. Exciting. But what happens next? Our author gives us a contrast now in the text, and our author wants us to notice the difference between Melchizedek and Bera, king of Sodom, in the text 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young man have eaten and the share, the men who went with me. Let Honor, Escol, and Mamre take their share. All right, so our narrative ends here. And if, and if you're a kid in here, you might be thinking, that is the weirdest end to the story. How goofy. What, what's the point? But, but here's what it's driving at. Here's what I want you to get. If you notice King Melchizedek's first words in the text, King Melchizedek's first words were, blessed be God. Now, look at King Sodom's first words. Give me. And what our author is doing is contrasting two kings, two responses. Whereas King Melchizedek and Abram give God the credit for the victory, the king of Sodom in verse 21, when he says, take the goods for yourself, is, is, is his way, this is really what he's saying contextually. Hey, Abram, look, man, you had a good play in the game. And I'll be honest, King Cheddar and his war machine, they dominated, they even beat our team. But you took your 318 guys and You won. Good for you. You're the MVP, and I, you deserve it. So you keep all the stuff. And that's going to be my way of just to let you know that I know that you're awesome, you're a wonderful player, and you deserve the credit. Which is why, as readers, we are to see that Abram saying, no way. I'm not taking your stuff. Is Abram's way of going, the credit's not to me. Man, don't be putting my name up on the headlight. I don't, I don't deserve the credit here. And Abram's saying, I don't want anybody thinking I'm going to get rich because of you, Bera, king of Sodom. And, and most importantly, I don't want anyone thinking that I actually believe I deserve credit. I don't deserve the credit for this. It's not me. This then is why Abram, he had no problem letting his trained men take some food and their share. And it was just fine that Honor, Eschol, and Mamry allies who went with him, they can have their share, but Abram's taken none of it. Let the record show, Abram's saying, God deserves credit for this victory. And that's the point. God's people give God the credit. In this text, that if you didn't realize it was a contrast, otherwise it would end goofy, it's showing that King Melchizedek receives God's man warmly. He blesses God. And the king of Sodom, he demands what he wants, and he's ignoring God, not concerned with who this God Most High is. And so that's what's going on in the text. And it's right then that we would take the 20 minutes to make sure we know what's going on in this text, but if you're mindful of of Genesis 14, you'll remember Genesis 14 wasn't written to Abram. It was written to the Israelites that were in the wilderness. I think what Moses wants to make sure the Israelites in the wilderness who are on the verge of going into the promised land understood is that just as Abram realized it was God who deserved credit for the victory, so the Israelites needed to know who rightly deserves the credit for their victory. Who is it that deserves credit for the escape from Egypt? And who is it who deserves all the credit for that Red Sea escape when they walked through the water that was a half a mile or more high and it destroyed Pharaoh? Who was it that deserved the credit for manna in the morning and water? And as the Israelites would then go into the promised land as Joshua and judges and kings would rule, who deserves the credit for the Israelites? Blessed be God most high who has delivered enemies into our hands. It is God who deserves the credit, not us. Amen? Amen. God, he would be right to point to his jersey. God would be right to raise his hands and take the credit. God, when he's facing King Cheddar and his war machine, would be right to give the you-so-small taunt. You cheddar, a God. Talk about getting credit. We, along with the Israelites, would be right to stand up and applaud God and say, you deserve the credit. See, despite what anyone would say today, any victory that we as God's people experience is a victory belonging to the Lord. And we'll here then, our answer to the first question, if you're wanting to make sure you've got it clear, who really defeated King Cheddar and his war machine, answer, God defeated King Cheddar. We'll move with me now to our second big idea, our application. Now, so what? So what implication should God's victory in Genesis 14 really have on us today? Well, here's the question that it drives us to, church. Who gets the credit in your life? Church, who gets the credit in your life? Now, now I grant, again, I don't think I've seen any of you scoring a touchdown in a playoff game. If so, let me know. I'd like to tune in. And and I'm unaware of any of you leading a, a special forces military campaign against some warlord dictator and defeating him. Again, if that's happening, I'd love to know. But in your day-to-day, there are plenty of times, as God's people, we may experience some small victories or wins, whatever it is, personal goal, educational goal, work goal, family goal, marriage goal, fill in the blank. If you hit that goal, a question for you, Man, who's getting the credit? See, if you hit that goal and in your heart, You're pointing to your name on your jersey. If you're beating your chest thinking, man, it's because of me that this happened, beware. The credit doesn't belong to you. If the Lord has given you a victory, the credit is the Lord. We're not to point to number one, pretend number one, point to the true number one. So the question, who gets the credit in your life? A different way to think about it is... If we were to ask your spouse or kids, if I was to come ask co-workers, I said, hey, they seem to be doing a good job. You seem to be doing a good job. And I asked people around you, I said, who's getting the credit? How would those people respond? Would would they say you have a tendency to give the credit to the Lord or do you have a tendency to take the credit? A final way to think about this question would be, when no one is looking, it's just you and God. In the throne room of your heart, where's the credit going? Are you taking credit, or are you giving credit to God Most High? As I was writing this sermon, I was convicted by this question in my own life. Let me open up, show you in my own life where I've felt this one was in the act of preaching. By God's grace, I love getting up here to preach. I'm as excited to be up here today as I've ever felt. And and there are times where, man, I work hard, I try to dial that sermon in, I've practiced, I've gone through feedback team, and I deliver the sermon. And, and some of God's people will say, yes, man, that. That really landed for me, and I leave thinking, yes, <laughs> yes, but it's in that very moment, when I get out in my little car, and I'm by myself, in my heart, who's getting the credit? Convicted, I want to be, be 100% transparent and say, God, I did work, but only because you gave me gifts. And if God took the gift of preaching from me, which is His gift, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. It's His gift. I want to be a good steward of. A second way this convicted me was some of the prayers for my neighbors to come to know Jesus. When I moved in to this region, just in the neighborhood over here, I was praying, Lord, would you let one person come to know you? And, And it wasn't for about five years until I heard that one person had come to know Jesus. Now, I suppose some folks might have come to know Christ, but the Lord decided not to let me know any of that. At best I knew, this is the first person, and they came to know Christ, nothing because of Mill Creek. <laughs> I just found it online. They said, oh, I going to another church and got baptized. I know Jesus now. And in those years of praying and wrestling, I I found myself thinking, God, what's going on? I'm I'm praying for my neighbors. I'm hosting hosting my neighbors. I'm seeking to bless my neighbors. And I'm really wanting to see my neighbors come to know Jesus. What's going on? And the Lord revealed in my heart this attitude of entitlement that I thought if I just walk through the steps, that at the end of it is going to be neighbors coming to know Christ. And I think part of why he did that is because he knew in my heart there was a question about who's going to get the credit. So if I walk around, I do my little formula, and then a bunch of people come to know Jesus, well, then I would have been, I wouldn't have said it like this, but probably pointing to my name. By God's grace, there's been a few of my neighbors who've come to know Jesus in the last couple years. And I can tell you clear conscience. I know who gets the credit for that. That has nothing to do with me. And that has everything to do with the saving power of God. Blessed be God most high who saves. Now, an important caveat here. In the text, you you might be thinking, but wait, Jeremy, God used Abram and his 318 men. It's not like God didn't choose to use Abram. Then you'd be right. And in my own examples, it's not like God has never used me and the gifts of preaching or in my neighborhood. It's not like God has never used my invitation and sharing gospel with people in my neighborhood to save. There's an important caveat. Here it is. God delights to use his people to accomplish his purposes. And undoubtedly for you, church, God wants to use you. In your community, he wants to use you to bring Credit to his name. But here's what's so important. He doesn't need you. And he doesn't need me. We got to give God the credit for wins today. Tattoo this in your brain. God can use any schmuck he wants to to win the day. He could have used Abram in the 318. He could have used anybody because it's God who's getting it done. So it is in preaching God can pick any person to come up, preach his word, for him to get the credit. God can use anybody in my neighborhood. God can use anybody in your neighborhood. We want to be faithful so that at the end of the day, when we ask the question, who gets the credit? It's God. That's question one. Here's question two application. Who gets the credit when you grow more like Christ? Now, this may sound bizarre to any of you who are new to following Jesus. But this pride attitude can creep in when Christians grow more like Christ, when they learn more of the Bible, when they see themselves growing in Christ-likeness, which we call sanctification. Would you say sanctification? Sanctification. When we see that, there's this attitude that can creep up in mature Christians where we have lost our humility And instead of being like the tax collector in the Luke 18 parable who beats his chest and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, some of us can tend to be like the Pharisee in that parable, and we think, oh, God, thank you that I'm not like these other heathens around me because I'm so holy. Question two for application, who gets the credit when you see growth in your life? Somebody comes up and says, I see you growing more like Jesus, who gets the credit for that? Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 12, we are to work out our salvation. So, Christian, you here are to do work to be more like Christ. That's Philippians 2.12. But listen to how Paul bookends it in Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and and to work for His good pleasure. God works in, we work out, and we want to give God the credit. Oh, and by the way, if you're here and you're struggling, to think, "Am I even growing like Jesus at all, Pastor?" I'm so down. I don't know if I'm. I don't know if I'm actually growing at all. If you're feeling down on yourself, look at Abram. He's the father of Israel, for heaven's sakes. And in Genesis 12 he's treating his wife awful. He's so self-centered. In Genesis 13, he's putting Lot before himself. In Genesis 14, Abram's risking his life to go save, and he's giving God the right credit. But it'd only be a couple chapters, and we see Abram's growing little by little. That's not to say there's not two steps forward, one step back. I've been working on Genesis 16 and Abram's not believing God's promises very well in that chapter. It's we're a mess. All of us were taking little steps, but be encouraged. Abrams believing God's promises and God's making him more and more. We're seeing more and more growth in Abram. Well, having now considered these two questions, having heard me encourage Christians to give God the credit in their lives. A final question to end our sermon. Why is giving God the credit so crucial? If you're in here and, and you're not a Christian, if you're in here and you have not trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, this may be some of what's in your mind going, man, why is that so important? Why are you, why are you people making such a big deal of giving God the credit? Here's why. The question of credit and who gets it in your life actually becomes a litmus test that brings us down to the ultimate question, which would be, who gets the credit for saving you? Who's going to get the credit for saving you? See, this question of credit is going to ultimately drill down and reveal what you believe about salvation. Not only does God deserve credit when we win... But ultimately, it's only God who gets the credit for saving us. And so as we discuss and think about getting credit, we got to realize that at the heart of our salvation, the only way we're saved is God, meaning if a thousand years now, we could see a video of us in heaven, those in heaven, when asked with the question, how did you get here, there's nobody in heaven who would point to their name, or give the you so small taunt, and they're like, I made it to heaven because I'm so awesome. That's how I got here. None of us are there that way. The only way we are in heaven is because of what Christ did for us, and He's the one who takes the credit because we know we can't get there. If, If you're here, friend, and you're thinking to yourself, man, why is it crucial to give God the credit? Because at the heart of our faith, At the very center of our faith is the gospel, and the gospel teaches us we cannot earn our salvation. We'll never be good enough. We can never win the day. We can never be Superman and take the credit. The only way we're saved is because of God Most High. And at the heart of Christian belief then is saying, only you can save me, so please do what I can't do for myself. For Christians then, as well as the Old Testament Israelites, they would know, I can't do it. I need another. Which is why in the Israelite system, there was a priest. And if you're not a Christian, this idea of priest may seem very goofy. But both Christians know and the original readers of the Bible knew they needed somebody to get them to God. And that's what a priest was. A mediator. And what this text points us to And what you would need to know, non-Christian, is you too need a priest, one who is going to be able to step in the gap. And in our text, the Israelites would have known that Moses' brother Aaron and all the Levites were the priests, but they couldn't get the job done perfectly. And in our text, we meet Melchizedek, who's all the way different from the Levite group. He's a priest of God Most High. And in the New Testament, he points forward to Jesus who is the true and perfect priest king. See, if you're here and you're wondering who gets the credit, Christians know that they need a mediator who is going before God on their behalf. And it is Jesus then who is the perfect priest king who takes and deserves all the credit for our salvation. And when we see what Christ has done on the cross and all the ways he has blessed us, We see the fulfillment of the Genesis 12 promises. We see the fulfillment of him getting the credit from Genesis 14. He's the one who ultimately deserves credit in our lives. If you're here and you're not a Christian, right now, admit to God, I'm not trusting in you and I'm not giving you the credit, and he would save you. Church, for the rest of us, let us repent of all the ways that we may be like king of Sodom. Bira, let us repent of all the ways that we may be saying, I deserve credit for what I've done. And instead, let's rest in what God has done. Let's look to him and bless God for all the ways he saved and loved us. Will you pray with me? Now, Lord, would you take this word and drill it deep into our hearts that we would love, serve you, and rightly give you the credit you are a good God for all the ways that you deliver us. Now work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: If you like what you've
0: heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.